It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and we always encourage you to bring your Bible with you to worship, I want to encourage you to be opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Our study this morning will confine us to verses 30 through 37. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. If you're here this morning and you, uh, you don't have a Bible with you, we would love to give you a Bible. You can find one there in the pew back in front of you, and uh, we would encourage you to take that, make it your own, read it, uh, let, let God's Word find its home in your heart and mind. And uh, Let's pray and ask that the Lord would be uh, pleased in our time of study in His Word this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, what words we have just sung this morning. Lord, we glory in, we exalt in, we are thankful for, we are enamored by, we stand in awe of the gospel. The manifold wisdom of God as displayed in you, God, crushing your son for the penalty of sin. Indeed, if, if we, if, if mere man had to contrive of a way to deal with our sin problem, we would have never, never come to that conclusion. God, we thank you that you did. We know that you're holy and you're righteous and you're just. And your justice demands that sin be paid for. And that puts every single one of us without exception right smack dab in the crosshairs. We all deserve your wrath. We deserve to be separated from you. We deserve your just condemnation, your settled opposition toward our sin and the wrath that comes along with that. That is what we've earned. That is what we deserve. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. The manifold wisdom of God and the crushing of his son for guilty sinners, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that we can be found in Christ and not in our sin, in Christ and not in Adam, that there is forgiveness of sin. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. God, we come into your presence this morning with a reverential awe, a fear of God that is right, that is just, that is appropriate. Not fearful of your condemnation for those who are in Christ, but fearful because you are God and we are not. Because you, you are the creator, the holy one. But God, you bid us come as sons and daughters to you as our father in Christ. And Lord, we do that this morning. We come seeking to feed on your word. Thank you, Lord, that you take such good care of us. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us this side of eternity without instruction. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us without revealing your nature, your character, and your attributes as you have done so in your word and in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we lean into you this morning. We press into your word. We want to know you, Lord. We want to know the power uh, of your resurrection. We want to become like Christ in his death. Uh, and so, God, we ask that if you uh, would be so pleased this morning, would you reveal yourself to us? Would your word this morning act as a mirror to our souls? Would you confront us? Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you rebuke us where we need to be rebuked? 
Lord, would you bind us up where we need encouragement? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Lord, cause us this morning, as a result of standing face-to-face with your inerrant, inspired, infallible, holy word, to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we ask that you would do this by your power, and we place this request in your very able and capable hands. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is, Who is the Greatest? Who is the Greatest? The text before us is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and uh, I do need to warn you uh, that you would do well, as I have had to do this week in preparing for this message, to go ahead and put your steel-toed boots on, because this is a passage that confronts us. This is a passage that that causes us to come face to face with our uh, hearts. It causes us to stand toe to toe with our sinful, prideful tendencies uh, to to be seen and to be great, uh, to get ahead, to look out for number one. And so I want to encourage you this morning, while the gospel has so much to say uh, about uh, who we are in Christ and the forgiveness that is available for our prideful, sinful hearts. Uh, This uh, passage this morning is a confronting passage. And so let's put our steel-toe boots on as we we endeavor to walk through it this morning together. We learned a, a hard lesson in our text last week. That lesson that we learned was that we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength, though we try. We try, we try, we try to gut it out, to do it on our own, to go at it uh, in our own strength and with our own ability. But apart from abiding in Jesus, apart from his constant presence in our lives, our ministries, our lives, uh, they will lack his power. Well, we haven't left the classroom yet. We'll learn another hard lesson this morning as we approach our text. The lesson that we'll learn this morning is that Jesus has called each and every one of us to a life that is marked by humility and selflessness and serving. Friends, let me just remind us all, in case we need a reminder, that those things are not natural to us. Those are not a part of the natural man. Humility, selflessness, and serving are antithesis. They are the antithesis to our fleshly desires. That's why we've got to wake up every morning and remind ourselves, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let those words sear themselves upon your heart and mind. Humility, selflessness, and serving. That is what we must give ourselves to if we will look like our master. You'll see Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 50. That's that's the text that we kind of waded into last week, and it's the text that we'll be in this week and next week. It's really just an extended commentary on what it means and what it looks like to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. Those were the instructions, those were the words given to us back in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And so what has followed since Mark 8, 34 is an extended commentary is a look into what does that mean? What does it practically look like? When we flesh that out, what 
what fruits uh, are evident. We love the benefits of the cross, but we oftentimes disparage the demands of the cross. Now think about that for a minute. We love the fruits of the cross, but we oftentimes disparage the demands of the cross. But the cross demands us, the, the cross bids us come and die. In our flesh, we don't like dying very much. But friends, we never look more like Christ. We never take on more of the aroma of Christ as we do when we are denying ourselves and serving others. That's the lesson that we'll learn this morning. And so with that in our hearts and minds and a little bit of context, let me encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability as we read the text before us. This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and these are the words that he pens. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. There are three lessons that I want to draw your attention to this morning. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write them down. Number one is this. If you want to know what true humility looks like, if you want to know what true humility looks like, then look at the cross. Look at the cross. Let me draw your attention back to your Bible there for just a moment. Look at verses 30 through 32. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, went on from there. They passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So the second time Jesus has said this to his disciples. Jesus goes on, he says, When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus and his disciples, they've been up north, right? They've been up in Caesarea Philippi there, and now they're passing back down through Galilee. Uh, you might be able to remember back weeks ago, I, I said that Caesarea Philippi was the farthest north that Jesus and his disciples would go, and everything that took place, or takes place rather, from Caesarea Philippi is on the way to Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Nothing or no one can deter him from his mission. He is headed to Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, he and his disciples, they pass back through Galilee. And I can only imagine that there is a likely melancholy feeling 
uh, in the heart and mind of Jesus as he passes back through the place where he once ministered and lived. I mean, this was kind of home territory for Jesus. This region was where most of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. But Galilee is no longer in his sights. Again, Jesus has turned his attention away from Galilee and toward Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. Mark tells us here that Jesus did not want anyone to know that he and his small band of followers were passing through. Why do you suppose that is? This time around, Jesus' ministry is exclusively to his disciples. No fanfare, no expectant mobs, no, no miracles, no, no great crowds forming this time. You see, in the timeline of Jesus' life and ministry, at this point here in Mark chapter 9, we are but about six months away from the cross. And Jesus knew that he needed undistracted time with his disciples. You see, any, any teacher can come along and teach and leave behind a set of propositions. But Jesus knew that this in and of itself was not enough. Jesus was not content to just come and leave a set of propositions in the minds of his disciples. Jesus knew that he had to leave behind a band of persons on whose hearts those propositions were written. And so Jesus gives undistracted time to his disciples here in our text. What is Jesus teaching the disciples? Look back at your Bible there. As the day draws nearer and nearer, the, the increasing theme of Jesus' conversation and his teaching with his disciples revolves around the, the imminent death and resurrection. Jesus' death is imminent at this point. And so his goal is to prepare his disciples, to, to prepare these guys for what lies ahead. And look at what Jesus says in verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, I've already mentioned, this is the second time that Jesus has foretold his death. He'll do it again, here shortly. This is the second time that Jesus has foretold his death and resurrection to his disciples. He told them just one chapter back in Mark 8, 31. But here in this instance... Jesus includes some new information. Here Jesus adds the phrase, the Son of Man is going to be, and here it is, delivered into the hands of men. The word delivered there, paradidomai, has the idea of to be betrayed. Jesus is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He who took on flesh to live among man as a man will be rejected by man and he will die at man's hands. He'll be betrayed. While I think this verse certainly has Judas the betrayer in view here, I think there's more going on. I think there's more going on in this verse. Track with me here for just a second. When Jesus foretold his death and his resurrection for the first time back in chapter 8, verse 31... Responsibility for his suffering was placed squarely upon the Jewish leaders. Remember, Jesus said the scribes and the, and the elders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the, the religious elite, they're the ones who will kill me. And Mark wrote, the Son of Man will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and killed. But here in verse 31, the verb betrayed 
which can also be translated as handed over, is in the passive voice. Let your eyes glaze over there. Track with me here. This, this phrase, specifically, more specifically, this word, betrayed or handed over, it's in the passive voice. In other words, the subject of the verb or the one doing the handing over is concealed. We don't know who it is. We can infer who it is in its con- context here, but the passage does not explicitly tell us who it is that is going to be betraying, who it is that is going to be handing over Jesus. It's thought that this is what is referred to as a divine passive. In other words, it's a reference to God without using his name for fear of defiling it. We must never forget that it was God. It was God the Father who handed over his son to be crucified. Sinful men are certainly responsible for Jesus' death, but at the same time, just as we read this morning in our communion passage, it was the will of the Father to crush him. Who killed Jesus primarily? God did. It was carried out at the hands of sinful men, but God crushed his son for us. God handed over his son for us. God crushed his son so that he might not crush us. And how did Jesus go to the cross? He went humbly, he went voluntarily, he went as a servant. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. As Jesus is declaring himself to be the good shepherd, which I, if you're looking for a good quiet time passage to kind of stew over this week, let me just commend to you John chapter 10. Phenomenal passage there. Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd and Jesus says, I lay down my own life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Likewise, he said in Matthew chapter 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, a true picture of humility and servanthood, if we, if we want it, if we want that true picture of, of what humility looks like and servanthood really looks like, then we only need look at the cross. Because there it is displayed for us in all of God's manifold wisdom. Well, how did the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching? Now look at verse 32 there in your Bible. Mark writes, but they did not understand this saying. And furthermore, they were afraid to ask him. I hope you ask yourself questions when you're reading your Bible, when you're studying God's word, because I certainly do. And so I ask myself the question here, well, why were the disciples afraid to ask Jesus any further questions? What was going on? What were they thinking how were they processing? What, what was going on in between their ears? That they were fearful to ask Jesus any further questions. Well, I think it's possible here that their fear was, uh, was due in part to the freshness of the rebuke that Peter received when he protested Jesus' death. Uh, remember, Jesus had just responded to Peter primarily, but to his disciples as a whole, get behind me, Satan. Uh, back in Mark eight thirty three. But I think also their fear was probably rooted in denial. You see, we oftentimes reject what we don't wish to see. 
It's like going to the doctor and hearing difficult news. As the specifics of your, your illness become apparent, there can, there can become this corresponding fear to know any more. If you're anything like me, if I struggle with, with fear and anxiety in one area of life, it, it comes surging forth uh, when it has to do with anything medical, medical uh, related to me. I mean, I get all wound up tighter than an eight-day clock. I, I, can't, I can't go get a physical without my wife driving me home. And, uh, I, I, because I convince myself, and this is sinful. Uh, this is, but I, I mean, I, can, I, I start thinking, well, you know, what casket color do I want? And where am I going to be buried? And, you know, and, uh, um, but for me, that's, that's real. And it needs to be repented of. And we, we, we snicker at that, and, and I do too. But, but that, that's a sinful fear that I have to deal with with that. But when we hear something that we don't like, we, we oftentimes uh, want to kind of shut out what comes next. You know, you, uh, you may have seen this in a movie before, or maybe this has been you, or, or, or maybe you've seen somebody else, but some, some tragedy takes place. Uh, and you see a family member just, no, 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 as if no is going to change it. It's denial. It's denial of reality. And I think in this case here, the disciples are still assuming that in a short uh, time, they will hold chief positions with Jesus over his kingdom. And so when Jesus again speaks about his death a second time, they're in absolute denial. No, no, no. And they're not going to say it this time because the last time they said it, uh, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, got rebuked. And so this time they, they're fearful of asking any other questions. I mean, they're not thinking it. I mean, they're not processing all these things. I mean, this isn't going on in their hearts and minds, but they're, they're fearful to ask any further questions. You see, the disciples' eyes are still fixated on a temporal kingdom, and in light of that, they, they can't understand what seems to be a morbid preoccupation of Jesus over his own death and resurrection, not realizing that it is they themselves, which we will see, who are wrongly preoccupied. They're just preoccupied with the wrong things. The disciples think Jesus is morbidly preoccupied with his own death and resurrection. The problem is, is that the disciples are preoccupied which, with that which is wrong. Namely, who's going to be the greatest? Jockeying for position. You see, the message that Mark intends to communicate when his disciples, or when he describes the disciples as lacking understanding and fearful, Mark's not trying to, to show us here that Jesus chose an especially dull group of disciples, but rather to expose the gulf that exists between human ideas about what the kingdom of God looks like and divine ideas about what the kingdom of God looks like and how it is going to be ushered in, specifically by way of the cross. Friends, if you want to know what true humility looks like, if you want to grow in true humility, spend a whole lot of time looking at the cross. Spend a whole lot of time meditating on mulling over the cross and what the captain of our salvation did for us there. Asking him that we might become like him even in his death. Number two, the second lesson I think we learn here is that while Jesus taught about surrendering his life, which he did often, we, we are oftentimes more concerned with trying to fulfill our lives. Jesus, he was concerned about surrendering his. We are concerned about how we might 
fulfill our lives. Let me direct your attention to verses 33 and 34 there in your Bible. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Why? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. You see, as Jesus and the disciples were traveling through Galilee, they stop at a home in Capernaum. Uh, Probably, presumably, Peter's home. The home of Peter. And once settled inside, Jesus asked his disciples a most penetrating question. He asks, what were you discussing along the way? What was the topic of your conversation along the way? As these words rolled out of Jesus' mouth, I can imagine an eerie silence filled the room. I can imagine 24 beady eyes looking at each other as their shoulders sagged and their jaws drooped. Why? Because as they were traveling along the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. You see, Jesus' question here exposes his disciples. Jesus exposes his disciples with one simple question. It brought shame and embarrassment. You see, the word of God, it searches us, it exposes us. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it divides joint and marrow. It searches. God's word knows us. It, it shines light on us. It shows areas of sin, areas of desperate, needed growth. And that's a good thing. The disciples' reaction was similar to that of, of your children. Uh, or your grandchildren, or your nieces and your nephews. Okay? We've all probably been there before. The door is shut on the bedroom door. Right? The door is shut to the bedroom. And it's quiet in the room. And what do you do? You open the door to find that young one sitting there on the floor looking at you like a deer in headlights. Looking at you like a deer in headlights, wide-eyed, startled, and in silence. What are you doing, you ask? And what's the response? Silence. Silence. You see, the discussion turned argument between the disciples as they were traveling was an overflow of pride. Their hearts were just brimming, just bubbling over what was already in there. It was likely prompted by the perceived favoritism of Jesus to Peter, James, and John. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John who are the inner circle of, of the twelve. And oftentimes, these three fellows got, uh, got exposure to Jesus, were allowed to be with Jesus at times and in places when the rest of the disciples were not permitted to be with Jesus. It was only these three, James, Peter, and John, who were allowed to enter Jairus' house when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John were the only three who were permitted to accompany Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter singularly was commended and blessed after his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so you can imagine... Because we are the disciples, I am the disciples here. You can imagine the prideful grumbling and jealousy. Well, why didn't we get to go? What's so special about Peter, James, and John, Jesus? Why don't we get commended too? 
see yourself in the text here? I certainly do. How heartbreaking. Here's Jesus teaching about his imminent death, and the disciples are consumed with placement and arguing about their position. Even though Jesus taught that his kingdom was not of this world, the disciples' minds were still fixated on an earthly kingdom in which they would be Jesus' chief ministers of state. You know, our story is different, but our struggle is the same. Is it not? Our story is different, but our struggle is the same. We're no different than the disciples. Pride is deeply entrenched in all of our hearts. Every single one of us, without exception, are, are born Pharisees. And we have to wake up every morning and put off the old man. That's take off the Pharisee and put on the new man, which is clothed after the, the image or the likeness of its creator. Like that's an every single morning, moment by moment, day by day, putting off the old man, crucifying the flesh, dealing with the, the Pharisee that is resident in each and every one of us. We all have an addiction to ourselves. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I encouraged you several weeks back to memorize John 3.30. Did anybody take me up on my challenge? Simple statement. He must become greater, finish the sentence. I must become less. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Well, let me encourage you to memorize another verse if you don't already have it memorized, and that is Romans 12.3. Write that down somewhere in the margin. You can go back and visit it later. Romans 12.3. Paul simply tells us, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but instead think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of grace that has been given to you. Well, think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. We don't have a problem with that, by the way, do we? We all think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And so we need to do some sober thinking, right? Someone once said, those who think too highly of themselves don't think often enough. We think we deserve something better than we have. We compare ourselves to others. We get frustrated when others succeed. We get our feelings hurt when we aren't recognized as being the center of the universe. But in God's program, growing means becoming smaller. You see the paradox? In God's economy, in God's kingdom, growing means becoming smaller. Again, that's John 3.30. He must become greater. I must become less. And do you know what frees us from our addiction to ourselves? The gospel. The gospel frees us from our addiction, our preoccupation with ourselves. Because the gospel declares that everything we have, we've been given. Therefore, we have nothing to prove. Oh, that we would realize, we as me included, that we have nothing to prove. Jesus proved everything on our behalf when he was crucified, dead, and risen for us. My significance, my worth, my value, my status is all connected to him and his work. I need to let my mind marinate in that truth. We're sinners saved by marvelous grace. I have nothing to prove. Jesus has proved everything on my behalf. 
Jesus' question to his disciples, what were you discussing on the way, stood as a loving rebuke. Those tongues which had been so loud on the road were now silenced by conscience when in the house with Jesus. I was thinking here in my study this week, we do many things, we say many things when we are on the road that we would not say or would not do if we knew that Jesus could see and hear. You catch that? I'm not trying to over-read into the text here, but we do a lot of things. We say a lot of things that we would not do, that we would not say if we knew that Jesus could see and hear. And friends, let me just remind us that we are never out of his sight. We are never out of range of his divine ear. He sees all things, hears all things, knows all things, even what no one else in here knows about us or sees in us because he sees into our hearts. He knows our thoughts and our motivations and our intentions. And that is both gloriously freeing because he loves me in Christ still as it is devastating. There's no running. There's no hiding. We must never forget that all of our life is before his eyes. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, no creature... No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. The world can see no other path to greatness other than crowns and rank and wealth and position and status and influence and pomp and fanfare and glitter and lights and names in the headlines. The world can see no other path to greatness other than this path. But Jesus turns such thinking on its head. Jesus says that greatness is determined by service, not by status. If you want to be great, be great in things that matter to God, namely by dying to yourself. Number three this morning, there's the third lesson that I want to impress upon your hearts and minds, and that is this, true greatness is determined by service, not status. True greatness, or true greatness rather, is determined by status, not by service. Look at verses 33 through 37. And he sat down, Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must become last of all and servant of all. And so Jesus teaches with an object lesson here. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such, such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but also him who sent me. You see, since the disciples didn't answer Jesus' question about what they had been arguing about, Jesus answered the question for them. Jesus answered their fantasy by sitting down, which is the customary teaching position of a rabbi, by the way, and saying to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, if you're going to sit there like a deer in headlights and you're not going to answer my question, then I'll answer it for you. The desire for notoriety and for precedence was just as much a cultural preoccupation in Jesus' day as it is in our day. There's nothing new under the sun. 
But Jesus is calling his disciples and us to a countercultural life. Those in high and respectable positions often, not always, not making a blanket statement here, but those in high and respectable positions oftentimes demand to be served rather than serving. But Jesus says that the highest position in his economy is the lowest position. It's a servant. What what a paradox here. I mean, Jesus oftentimes taught using paradox. We've studied some of that already in our study of Mark. I mean, Jesus said things like, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life will find it. He said things like, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and love those who hate you, and if you want to be great, be small, and if you want to be first, then be last. Now, having said this, I think it would be a misapplication of the text. I think it would be overstepping the intention of the text to assert that Jesus was condemning ambition. I don't think that that's what's taking place here. Jesus was not condemning ambition. What he certainly was doing was reorienting it. All right? He was saying that instead of being ambitious to rule, how about being ambitious to serve? Instead of being ambitious to be Lord, how about being ambitious to to look after the needs of others? Instead of being ambitious to be master, how about being ambitious to minister to the needs of others? To sink is the way to rise and to serve is the way to rule in Jesus' economy. I mean, what Jesus is calling for here, specifically in verse 35, is a radical others-centeredness. And again, that is, that is not natural to us. That, 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 is, that is not a part of the natural man's desire. That's why we've got to put off the old man and put on the new man. This is a part of what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. You see, the ambition of the world is to receive honor and attention, but the delight of a Christian should be to give rather than to receive. To attend to the needs of others as being greater than our own needs. It's interesting to note here that the word servant in verse 35, it's not the word doulos or slave, which Jesus does refer to his disciples, we, as doulos oftentimes. But rather the word that we see here is the word diakonos. It's the word from which we get our word deacon or the one who serves. It's aptly translated as minister. You see, here's a wonderful truth. Greatness in God's economy isn't reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Rather, greatness presents itself to every believer in the common and simple task of serving others. Let me me, me just say it this way. Do you want to know how mature in Christ you are? Let's look at how we serve others as being a defining mark, as as being a distinguishing characteristic. How many verses do you have memorized? How many Bible studies do you go to? What leadership position do you hold? All those things are great, and we ought to be growing. This is not an either-or. I'm not encouraging you not to memorize and hide God's word in your heart. I mean, the, the, the exact opposite would be the case. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The word dwell is oikos, by the way. It means home. Let the word of Christ have its home in you. It's dwelling in you. It's living place in you. It's not an either or. 
I'm just encouraging you to define your maturity in different terms. Anybody can, a parrot can, can memorize things rote. It's the word diakonos here, to, to minister, to serve the needs of others. How are you ministering to those in your family or your local church or your workplace? Let me, let me just, since we're all sitting here, how about our local church? You know, it's the old 80-20 rule, right? 20 people do, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That should not be. Now, granted, in, in a room like this, what the, man, time flies when you're having fun. In a room like this, we all have differing physical abilities. There are age ranges across this congregation. There are differing maturities across this congregation. But every single one of us has the ability to contribute to the whole. Matter of fact, if you know Christ, you've been given a spiritual gift. And Paul tells us that that gift wasn't given to you for yourself primarily, but for the common good of the whole. And so I would submit to us, and I struggle here too, that to not use that giftedness is sinful and needs to be repented of. I would encourage you, think about, pray about, talk about, go have coffee with another brother or sister in Christ, and just, just start conversation amongst us. What are ways that I can serve God's people here at the chapel? What are ways that I can jump in and be a part? Instead of just coming with a consumer mentality, let's come with a contributing mentality. What can I do to invest in God's people? And then even greater than that, what can I do to invest in the community in which this congregation sits right in the middle of? We'll either be givers or takers. We'll be users or we'll be infusers. Jesus modeled this servant's heart for us uh, and, he, and he had this conversation with his disciples just days before uh, his crucifixion. Here's the conversation that I speak of. Uh, turn your Bible to John chapter 13 for just a moment. This is a familiar passage to all of us. Just days before his crucifixion. This is the type of conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. Jesus rose from supper and he laid his outer garments aside, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, leader of the disciples here, who said to him, Lord, why do you wash my feet? Foot in mouth statement. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, but if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus replied, he said, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Speaking about Judas here. For he knew the one who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. He had washed their feet. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, You do not understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done for you. Friends, I will tell you this. You, you and I can scarcely look more like our master than when we're serving the needs of others. We could add a whole lot of other things in there too. We scarcely look more like our master than when we are generous forgivers of others who sin against us. You want to look like Jesus? Be a servant. Be a servant. No matter how educated, talented, rich, or cool you believe yourself to be, and I believe myself to be cool sometimes, how we treat others, how we serve other people ultimately tells all. Jesus demonstrates this lesson with a living parable. Now look at verses 36 and 37 as we land the plane here. Jesus embraces a, a child here, quite possibly one of Peter's own children. And he said, using this living sermon here, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying here? What's the significance of receiving a child? Well, I think first of all, we should note that a child has nothing to give you. A child has nothing to contribute to you. Furthermore, a child has a lot of needs. You don't serve a child to gain status or advance selfish ambitions. You don't serve a child for what you'll get in return. But Jesus' reference to a child here, I think, also is very specific. To welcome or to receive one of these little children means, in context, to treat honorably other disciples. The word for child here in Aramaic, which is Jesus' native and oftentimes spoken language, is the word for servant, interestingly enough. What Jesus is telling us here is that we're to receive other servants or children of God with the same love and open arms with which Jesus embraced this little child in front of his disciples. And when you receive or you serve or minister to the needs of others in the body, you receive Jesus. You receive the Father because of the common bond of the Holy Spirit. Jesus declares that the true way to greatness is not determined by status, but rather by devoting ourselves to the care and service of his flock, especially those who might be easily overlooked or otherwise unattended to. And there are some in this congregation that might otherwise be overlooked or unattended to. Open our eyes and we'll begin to see them. The reason we don't see so much opportunity is because our eyes are inwardly focused. Jesus warned his disciples and us to understand that there is to be no thought of precedence among the body of Christ in which the spirit of God resides. No one is better than another. No one is higher than another. No one is more privileged than another. But oh, how we falsely presume this to be the case. And so Jesus lovingly calls us to repent of our lofty view of ourselves. Jesus lovingly calls us to repent of our privileged and, and deserving mentality, our, our want to be served rather than to serve. Jesus lovingly calls us to repent of our comparison of one another. Jesus lovingly calls us to repent of our desire to be noticed and congratulated, to repent of our addiction to ourselves, to repent for our desire for status and our lack of service. And let me close this morning with Paul's challenging words to the church in Philippi. Don't turn there, just, just give me your ears here. 
Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, kenosis, poured himself out by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Let's humble ourselves. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what true humility looks like, look at the cross. While Jesus taught about surrendering his life, oftentimes we're more concerned with fulfilling ours. And we need to be reminded that true greatness is determined by service, not by status.